some, um, you know, conversation time can be either about, you know, just what I was speaking about or if there are other questions that are up for you in terms of what's going on in your practice and how to, what's going on in your life and how practice can support that. You know, it's all welcome. And I record it because sometimes what comes up in these conversations is really um, very pertinent. And so then these the talks get edited, sound edited, and then put up on the on the website so that other people can have access to them. And um, there's people who really find them tremendously valuable. I have one question. Uh, it is pertaining to the Diamond Sutra, as I was um, talking to you on the email. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with the Diamond Sutra. Uh, um, many themes involving uh, the ego and the self and conceptions of these things. And, uh, there's a part that I've been unable to understand thoroughly. Totally. I'm not sure if it's just a uh, translation I was reading or if it's not. Uh, uh, where Buddha says that uh, in accordance with one. Uh, Discarding all notions of self and you know, a separate person, universal self, and uh, things of that sort, he then says that uh, it is even more obvious that once you discard the non-existence, the, the, the notion of the non-existence of such concepts, and I, I, I just have been entirely unable to grasp what that means. Well. That doesn't surprise me too much, Luke, because you're talking about the most difficult um, stuff to wrap your mind conceptually around. And part of the reason why is because our concepts, by their own very nature, are conditioned. And what the Buddha is talking about is what happens when we start breaking through that. And so um, there's two extremes. One is, is that we are self-existent, and the other is, is that there is no existence. Okay, And both of these extremes have um, are incorrect in terms of what's actually happening. And so um, to say that we have self-existence is pointing to some idea that there's some kind of permanent, unchanging entity that we can find in our body, in our feelings, in our perceptions, in our ideas and associations that arise in our relationship to our perceptions and the consciousness that's present with the knowing of that. And when we look, we can't find anything that doesn't change in those things, okay? So from the experience of existence, there isn't anything that's unchanging in everything that we can talk about and name and label as being who we are, all right? It's all changing, okay? So the existence thing is like, all right, so there's some understanding that there mu- there's no permanent, unchanging entity that we can locate. But we also are not non-existent. You know, we're not an imagination. We're not a hallucination. We're not a fantasy of somebody else. You know, there's something here, okay? But the question is, is what is here, all right? So to say that I don't exist is is an inaccurate is to say that I exist. I almost feel sort of a theme, uh, almost sort of a theme in the middle path there. 
And that's exactly right. So, you know, one of the esoteric schools of the Tibetan Buddhism is, is, is that they talk about the middle path, which is, is, is that, um, you know, so there's one school of Buddhism that says it's mind only, that, 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 that things only exist because of projection from one's own mind. And the middle path says is, is, is that it argues that and says that it's not, it's not only just a projection of your own mind. You are not just a projection of your own mind. <laughs> so there is definitely a middle path in all of this. But you see, what's happening for most people is, is that you're in such kind of abstract concepts that it's difficult to ground this in some kind of a, well, how do you practice with this? And what does this mean in terms of our daily life experience? That's, that's, the, that's it right there. That's right. exactly what I was thinking. Right. You know, because it's like, you know, you're out in the seventh dimension and we're struggling with dimension two and three, you know, so how do you navigate, you know? And I think, you know, one of the ways to navigate is, is, is that, you know, when we have an idea that this is like this, then to put a question mark around it, all right? So, for example, I say, okay, this is a glass. You know, I'll bet my life on it that this is a glass, right? But this is a glass dependent on the fact that I'm drinking water out of it. But if I stuck a bunch of flowers in it, it would be a vase. If I turned it upside down and I put the Kuan Yin statue, it would be a, it would be a, a stand. If I turned it on its edge and I rolled flower on it, it would be a rolling pin. You know, so it exists as a glass dependent on the way I am using it. So when I get all huffy about the fact that's a glass and I know it's a glass and I'll bet my life on it then to put a question mark around that is as well, you know, is that actually so? So the way of working with this in terms of our own practice is, is that when we have really strong ideas about who I am or who she is or how it is or the way it is, when it's coming out of view rather than out of conviction, then we know from our philosophical understanding about stuff is, is that it all depends on how you're looking at it. You know? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I remember when I was reading it, and I was thinking a lot, and I was in a Dharma talk specifically on the Diamond Sutra to sort of figure this thing out. Uh, I sort of got that same kind of premonition in my head, but like hearing you say it sort of adds to that premonition. When you first started, you were talking about form and about um, uh, your aversion to chanting and to, you know, statues and, and all that stuff. I had a, kind of a similar feeling about bowing as well until somebody told me um, how they saw it. And, um, you know, I came from, uh, at least my grandparents anyway, from a family that was went to church regularly and there was a lot of standing and sitting and um, kneeling and praying and stuff. And um, so I have always had an aversion to stuff 
didn't see necessarily see the worth in it. But anyway, um, somebody told me that when you bow, you're uh, you're you're basically you're putting your head below your heart, and you're elevating your heart above your head, and that it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it was like, now okay, now I'm okay with bowing because that that really resounded with me. Mm-hmm. Um, the chanting, I had the same same thing with that. Um, in fact, I think I even told Jennifer before we came, we might chant, you know, so I had <laughs> forewarned you. Beware! <laughs> um, and I really, like, like in church, I, I never sang, you know, we had the book open, and I, you know, my grandparents, my grandmother would always look at me to see if my mouth was moving, and it wasn't. <laughs> and uh, so, I guess that was just a comment. And I think, Scott, it's an important process to explore. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens as we enter into this um, dialogue about, you know, where we stand in a relationship to form and structure and devotion and all the rest of that is we run the risk of throwing out a whole component of life, which is actually incredibly important. And that component is, um, it's like surrendering to something that we don't have language to name. And, you know, something that is bigger than what I can wrap my concepts around and something that I have control over and, you know, something that I define myself by. And, and so in our, in our interest for autonomy, in our interest in rationality, in our interest in not being part of a, you know, sh- one of the sheep, we can also throw the baby out with the bathwater of, you know, taking a whole component of life and just tossing it out because we don't have right relationship with it in the ways and structures that make sense. Now, you guys love music, you know, and a lot of stuff that happens in music is connecting with something that is bigger. You don't have language to describe. There's a heart connection. There's something that you can open up to and surrender, and that feels totally fine, you know. So part of the problem is, is is that when the liturgy is in language that's archaic or the, the tune is, is in something that there's no resonance with, you're, you're putting it in a category of a religious church rather than, um, you know, concert music, you know. So, you know, one of the things that's really healthy is for any culture, you know, to have music that is depicting the stuff that they believe in. So somebody just gave me two CDs of Dharma songs by um, punks and young people and people who are like not interested in religious stuff, but they're interested in actually expressing what they know the truth to be, but in language and music and tune and genre that they can resonate with. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what is needed. Okay. So I would love to take this and rewrite them and so that the language is actually more reflecting of our direct experience and the tune actually makes us hearts open rather than go like, you know, and and so there's something that actually, because when you've got something that makes sense to you, you know, that is a reminder of something that you really value, in language and in tune that actually lets your heart sing, it's extraordinary. You know, that's why music and concerts are so popular, because there's something that happens that's electric and 
deeply bonding for everybody, you know, to be part of that. Now, we, uh, we gave no end of grief to the monk. There was a monk who, I don't know why it was up to him, but somehow it was up to him to decide the English chanting and the kind of how it was going to go. And he decided, and part of this was because, you know, our precepts are that we're not supposed to sing. So he interpreted that, that if we kept it only at three notes, then we weren't singing. If we had more than three notes, we were singing. So the tone of this is like a death dirge. (laughs) Now, in Italy, there's no way that they would accept three notes. It's categorically impossible. So they negotiated for five notes. Because in Italy, there's just no way. But we were in England. (laughs) So we got three. I mean, it's just ridiculous. This is totally ridiculous. But this is life, and this is exactly what happens, you know, and this is why people have such a kind of resistance to church stuff because of exactly that, you know, and I get it. But I also get it that it's nice not to have to come up with original formulations every single instant, that it's actually lovely just to have reflections that you can work with to help us consider, you know, what are important things to think about without having at every single instant of every single moment of every single day being original, you know, (laughs) it's exhausting, (laughs) you know, it's exhausting. But these are edges to work with, and I don't think in any way that it's helpful to put a should upon oneself in terms of, you know, how it's supposed to be. But certainly when you can see that bowing is not about devotion to something outside that you can't relate to, but actually putting up a value that you totally can relate to and surrendering to that, then you can find a way. Yeah, Because not being able to bow can be just as much of a stuck position as having to bow. You know, it's just as limiting and and unfreeing as the idea that you have to bow, you must bow, you're supposed to bow, you know. But this stuff is personal, and, you know, we have our, you know, histories that we've navigated. You know, I come from Jewish ancestry, and for Jewish people, it's sort of like genetic that we don't bow, you know. It was a huge thing for me to figure out what that was all about. So we've had two verbalizations from people of male genders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Sorry, had someone to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, I had an interesting experience this week with the. Uh, um, we talk about the self-deprecating thoughts and how those work. And so um, my boyfriend and I had somewhat of an argument about, it was it was kind of specific to this specific conversation, so I won't go into the details on that, but, but the end result was I felt unworthy. And I kind of, and I was, I was aware of the thought, and there was such a pull to kind of like go into that whole, like, I'm unworthy, I don't deserve to be in a relationship. And and it was so strong that I just, you know, I just said, you know, I have this thought, you know, this unworthiness thought is 
up right now. And, you know, and I told John, and he said, you know, why do you have to go there? And it just made me realize, like, I don't have to go there. <laughs> and so I was able to just stay kind of, like, right there with it without having to kind of, you know, kind of fall off the cliff, basically. But, um, yeah, it was really interesting mm-hmm. that, you know, there's a choice. Mm-hmm. And it's much more pleasant not to go there. Yes, but it's also really hard to know that you have that choice unless you've got support, mm-hmm. you know. And so the importance of sangha is just like you can't overstate how important it is. Mm-hmm. And so you know, in this case, John is so fabulous. Yeah, that he reminds you exactly what needs to be reminded. Right. You know. Yeah, shit can come up, but so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to eat it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. So I'm curious when you hear these reflections, what happens for you? Do they land well? Do they make sense? Are they useful? I'm, I'm very new to this um, entire thing, and uh, I have actually discovered quite a few things that I didn't really realize were pertinent, I guess. Um, the, the way things don't last, and the, the attachment leads to suffering and, you know, all of the things. And so when you were reading those, uh, it really did touch base to be able to understand, like, having had those thoughts before in my mind at completely separate times in large, small intervals, and then understanding how to depict them in my own, like, way uh, was really helpful. I guess that's really Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's totally different from the way we normally think. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm quite enjoying it, mm-hmm. actually. You, know, you don't have anything on billboards that says, you know, contemplate the fact that things change, yeah. you know? Or that, you know, the power and the position and the privilege and the wealth that we have is not where lasting happiness comes from. You know, you don't get messages like that. You know, most of the messages that we get are, you know, buy into it. (laughs) Bite it hook, line, and sinker. Go for it. (laughs) Did you notice the sign on the bottom of the Coke machine at the Franciscan Abbey? Mm -hmm. Uh, Quench your thirst or something? Obey your thirst. Um, (laughs) So, you know, consumerism is not based on right relationship with things. It's based on, you know, believing somehow that our happiness is going to come from having what we want. You know, so we have a whole kind of social system that's built upon wrong view. You know. So, you know, when it's talking about cutting against the stream, it's like no joke. <laughs> You know, it's like no joke. Because it's everywhere that, you know, the normal valuing of ways is oftentimes opposite of what is instructed for freedom and for happiness. 
been experiencing that a lot with my parents lately. Um, because after being introduced to this and, and starting to think a different way about things, I'm having a lot of conversations and a lot of arguments with them about how I am, you know, like ruining my life and, you know, I should get a job and a place and have kids and whatever. And um, I just realized that it's, they don't really quite have, they don't really have the ability to grasp that. I'm not trying to figure out how to say it. Um, that, like, my choices um, are going to make me happy because that's what I choose to do, is to do things to, you know, like, in, but they don't necessarily mean to, to get a job or to have a car or a house or all these things that are surrounding me, but just to be, like, really involved in right now. And they dwell on the future and the past and, like, what they have that makes them who they are. And... So ever since I mean, I met Luke, or ever since we've been back in Colorado Springs, it's just been easier because we've talked about it a lot to like how to see like the difference between what I used to think like and what I think like now, and how other people can be different. Yeah, but just also you need to give like a really wide berth around family because you know family have a couple of things going on. One is is, is is that mostly really what they're only interested in is is in your health and happiness. Mm-hmm. And they're coming from a worldview is that the only way for you to be healthy and happy is to buy and hook, line, and sinker, mm-hmm. and to have enough financial security and all the rest of that that, you know, you're going to be okay. You know, my mom still gives me a hard time regularly about the fact, I mean, part of it is is, is that there, it's like, it's not a fantasy of confusion to recognize, I'm an alms mendicant, I'm 50 years old, I've got no social security, I've got no pension, I've got no monastic community around me. It's like, okay, I'm pushing some edges here, for sure. And there's going to be a time where I might need to make different choices. And so my mom reminding me of that constantly every time I see her is not just the fact that she's committed to something that I don't believe in, but she's actually interested in me not ending up in the position of something she wouldn't want to see for me. Yeah, and I think it's just the difference of, um, yeah. of those, like, that's going to be good for you and that's going to be good for you. Right. Right. It's, it's like a difference of what right. I think. Exactly. You know, so she doesn't have the experience of living on faith and knowing that things can open up. But she does know that, you know, this world is based on a certain amount of materialistic acquisition and if you don't have it you know people can be in really difficult positions you know so with parents it's really challenging because you know on one hand they want the best for you and on another hand unless they're quite extraordinary they haven't necessarily opened up to the fact that there are different options for what happiness might look like you know yeah mm. Jennifer, how do you sit with you? Um, quite well. I've been... There's pretty tumultuous times happening right now. And, um... I've sort of been asking in some way for this sort of thing to present itself to me, sort of discussion, 
and just um, awareness and um, and and with Scott, I mean, he just he drove me right here, and it was it was pretty just been sort of um, in in a state of just um, gratefulness. It's going to get me through what's going on. And, um, you know, and I, I feel a lot of joy and the kind of peace in my heart about it. That's lovely. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And it is true, practice does prevail. You know, I've been through some rough times, and there's nothing that practice you can't practice with. You know, nothing. So, sometimes it takes some time for the dust to settle, but it does. Just keep your heart in the right place and keep affirming what you know to be true. Keep reaffirming ground and take it gently. Hang out with people who understand in places where you feel safe. It'll come right. One thing that pops into my mind is that I am really a believer that everybody that we come in contact with, whether it's our own children or if it's strangers, we're all teachers in both directions. And sometimes it's simply because you haven't been exposed to something yet, whether it's coming from a child or it's coming from someone older. And so I always try and keep that in a perspective. And um, I guess one of the examples I could give is um, I was widowed at a fairly early age. I mean, I'm sure I have kids <laughs> as old as healthy, but uh, my husband passed away totally unexpectedly. Um, and I spent a year trying to study grief around the world others deal with it and all. I made statements in my own head that I would never <laughs> let this happen again. And I just recently got remarried. And knowing that I may walk that same line again, and knowing that it's okay because I learned and I grew from so much. And a lot, I have to say, had to do with my daughters. And being younger and watching how that all transpires and how you take something like that and put it in perspective that we don't know how long you're going to be here or the people you love. And it's very reassuring to have a lot of these get-togethers like this, but to have some kind of tradition as well where you can reflect on those things. Because it may not be pertinent right now, but if it's in there, then you have it to draw on down the road when you're 
On the solstice, I was at Smokebush, and there was a, um, a pipe ceremony that Grandmother Celinda was facilitating. I love her. She's wonderful. She lives up in Florissant, and she has pipe ceremony every Saturday, and in the summertime, she does sweat lodges. And, uh, she's, she's just she's lovely. I think she's probably in her late 60s or her early 70s, and you know she's got white skin and red blood, and... Uh, She's just absolutely deeply committed to the Red Way and has been for decades. You know, she's a pipe carrier and she's a sun dancer. And um, she's great. But one of the things that I really love about the native or the indigenous way is, is that even though they absolutely honor their elders, they understand that the Spirit speaks through everyone. And that everybody's insight is really, there needs to be a space where it can be heard because spirit speaks through everybody. And that's right. You know, that's right. That's right, independent of how long people have been practicing, how brand new they are, that is absolutely right. That people have understanding and clarity and wisdom to share from wherever they're at. And we all benefit from hearing each other's insights, you know. It's absolutely right. So, you know, the tradition that I have come from is, 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 an, is, is started as a very, very strictly hierarchical tradition where the elders were considered the people who had done the practice and had spent the time and had the years and had the precepts and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And there's something about that which is correct, and there's something about that which is off-balances the intelligence that can emerge when everyone is allowed to share what they know from wherever they're at. So what I feel is needed is somehow a way that honors both, you know, where, you know, we're not giving power away to the person who's senior, but we're also not dismissing the fact that they've got experience and perspective that, you know, if you haven't spent that time doing that kind of stuff, you wouldn't have, you know. That's what I feel is needed, is a way that allows both, you know, honoring and respecting both the elders and the wisdom that's innate in the group. Hmm. So maybe we can do a little bit of meta meditation in the close of sharing our blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.